1 through 8 is our text of Scripture for today. This is the 16th sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Let me explain what I mean when I say a series through the New Testament book of Romans. We are studying Romans verse by verse. Uh, This is not a topical study. It is not on current events. It is not what the Lord has laid upon my heart this week. I'm just not coming up with something. We're actually studying the text of Scripture. And it is a verse-by-verse journey through this book of the Bible. So Lord willing, next week when we come back, what we're going to look at is where we left off today. And my primary goal in preaching through this book or any book of the Bible is to present to you what the Bible means and then to connect that with the overarching theme of the Bible, which is Christ crucified. So, making our way through Romans, this is the 16th sermon in that series. Today's message is 41 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is I Know What You're Thinking. Please turn to Romans chapter 3 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 8. As you do, please remember that God loves you. Hear the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves to show, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how would God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father in heaven, I do pray as we study your word today that we would understand this somewhat complicated passage. And Lord, as objections are raised concerning your righteousness and concerning your faithfulness, Lord, I pray that we will leave here today fully convinced that you are faithful and that you are righteous. So help me as I preach to proclaim your word with accuracy and joy, enthusiasm and compassion. And Lord, I pray for each person who's listening to this message that they will be able not only to follow along and to understand, but Lord, that they will rejoice in your faithfulness and in your justice. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the overarching theme today, we're going to be looking at the subject of objections, specifically objections of unbelieving Jews to Paul's building argument concerning the gospel. And we're going to do it by following a four-point outline. Objection number one, what's the use? Number two, that didn't work. Number three, that's not fair. Number four, what about me? Now, a few weeks ago in a sermon, I talked about chess. Specifically, I talked about how my skills have diminished over the past several years. Allow me to be more specific. I am told that in order to be a really good chess player, 
you have to possess the ability to think ahead. Uh, That is to anticipate the move that your opponent is going to make in response to your move and then determine how you will respond to their response and so on and so forth several moves into the future. Accurately thinking ahead several moves into the future makes you really good at chess. And grandmasters in chess know with reasonable certainty what move you are going to make before you even make it. I'm told, I read one time, that sometimes they can think as many as 10 or 15 or 20 moves into the future. Me, I have trouble remembering how the horse moves, but that's another sermon for another day. In some ways, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is a chess game. Uh, Paul, the grand master, the author, uh, makes his Holy Spirit-inspired move with respect to building his gospel, and then immediately he accurately anticipates the emotional and logical reaction and or response of his reader, and then he follows that up with the next anticipated objection along with answers. And he does this four times in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He is thinking four moves ahead of his readers. I think that one of the best ways that we can learn to be persuasive is to accurately anticipate how our message is going to be received. Uh, Particularly, we need to anticipate, will there be any questions or objections or potential misconceptions which may arise from what we have just stated? And, and, And then what a good salesperson will do is he will anticipate what you're thinking about his product, but before you can even say anything, the good salesman will say this. Now, I know what you're thinking. And then he will state, almost as if he has telepathy, exactly where your hesitancy is. And then he will follow that up before you can even speak with a convincing solution. I know what you're thinking. Or as a salesman might say, now you might be asking yourself at this point, or you're probably saying to yourself at this time, hey, wait a minute, pal, what about so on and so forth? If the salesperson does that, and if they accurately have read your mind, and if they have sufficiently answered your question, they're going to make a lot of money selling stuff. Well, this is what Paul does in Romans chapter 3. And he is going to be answering objections of unbelieving Jews, which begs the question, how in the world did the Apostle Paul know what they were thinking? I have four answers to that. First of all, and most importantly, he knew because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was granting him divine reason and insight into the motives and thinkings of those to whom he was addressing. Secondly, the reason that Paul was able to do this is because he was brilliant. Thirdly, is because he himself used to be an unsaved Christ-hating Jew, so he knew how they think. And fourth, and this is practically what I want you to see today, practically speaking, I think he was able to anticipate their objections and to answer their questions because he had a lot of experience reasoning with unsaved Jews as a missionary. Several times he would go into the synagogue and he would reason with them. For example, in Acts chapter 17, he is 
going into a synagogue, and here's what it says in verses 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, hang on to that phrase, and on three Sabbath days, here we go, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. What was his reasoning and what did he conclude? explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Several things in this passage. First of all, note that he would do this as his custom. He did it a lot. He did it in a synagogue. He did it with Jews and the conclusion that he was coming to in each case was that Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ had to suffer and that the Christ had to rise again on the third day, which is the gospel. And the gospel is of first importance. Do you know that gospel? Do you believe that gospel? That you are a sinner and that you need to be made right with God. And the only way you can be made right with God is that Jesus died for your sins and rose again for your justification. That's the gospel that Paul reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that Paul could write to the Romans with absolute confidence and absolute certainty and make his point with absolute accuracy and predict their objections to the letter. Why? Because he had heard these same objections multiple times in the past. He had had these conversations dozens, maybe even hundreds of times previously. He knew exactly how they reasoned and how they concluded. That's why he will take the approach, now I know what you're thinking. That's what we have in Romans chapter 3. But before we get into these objections, we need to remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 2, which sparked this debate. In Romans 2, 17 through 29, Paul says to the Jews, you know, you possess the law of Moses. And I want to tell you that that in and of itself gets you nothing unless you obey it. And then he goes on to say, and you Jews practice circumcision. And that in and of itself plus $2.75 will get you on the subway. So, Paul concludes, if an uncircumcised Gentile keeps the law of Moses perfectly, and he can't, by the way, it's just hypothetical, but let's just say for the sake of argument that he could, if he does that, then he is considered righteous even though he is not circumcised. He is saved in God's sight simply by keeping the law. That person, as I said, does not exist. It's hypothetical. On the other hand, Paul says, if you, physically circumcised Jews, those who have the DNA of Abraham and you have the law of Moses, if you don't keep the law, you are not saved. You are actually not even Jewish. Uh, This is what he says at the end of Romans chapter 2. Listen to verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And at this point, Paul steps in, moving from chapter 2 to chapter 3. And let's remember that when Paul wrote this, there was no chapter break. The argument just continues and it flows from from these words at the end of chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3. At this point, Paul steps in and says, now I know what you're thinking. And he raises four anticipated 
Jewish objections, and the first one of those is, what's the use? What's the use? Verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? What's the use? Or what's the value of circumcision? What's the use in being Jewish at all? In other words, Paul, if what you're saying is true, it seems to be that there is no advantage to being Jewish whatsoever. I mean, after all, if an uncircumcised Gentile can be right with God, why do we even have this whole Jewish thing? What's the use? Are there actually any benefits at all to being Jewish? And it seems to be that there are not. And Paul says, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked, even though I'm the one that asked the question. And here is the answer in verse 2. Much in every way. So that's a little bit of a shock. They anticipate the answer is going to be no. You got it right. There's no advantage. And Paul says, no, there are advantages. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the words to begin with seem to imply that there's going to be a list of things. There's not a list of things. There's only one thing listed here. However, when Paul does get to Romans 9, he will list some of those advantages in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. But here in Romans 2, he only lists one of those advantages, even though he says that there are many. And the one advantage that he lists is that they have been given the written word of God, the oracles of God, an oracle that is regarded as infallible information. So you've been entrusted with the oracles of God and nobody else has. Remember last week when we were studying the privileges of being Jewish and the rhetorical question was raised in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, and what great nation is there? that has statutes and rules, that's the law of God, so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. And the implied answer is no nation has gotten that information except for the Jews. So don't think that you have no advantage at all over the Gentiles. You do have an advantage, and that is that you have the word of God. By way of application, uh, briefly now, but more so at the end of the message, I just want to say that those of you who were raised in Christian homes where you did have the word of God, uh, you were at an advantage. Now, certainly someone can be saved who did not grow up with the word of God, but they are at a disadvantage. Kids who grow up in real Christian homes where the Bible is read and memorized and lived and prioritized and obeyed and where families have devotions and where Bible reading is consistent and where the local church is a priority and church attendance and all-out participation in the church is required, these children actually have an advantage or a head start on kids who grow up with no biblical knowledge at all. I do understand that there are kids that grow up with the Bible and they end up in hell. And there are people who have never seen a Bible and they end up in heaven, but Just all things being equal, those that grow up with the word of God have an advantage, just as the Jews have an advantage, and Paul tells them of that advantage, that that, that, that's the use. That's the use. Is there an advantage to being a Jew? Yes, chiefly because they have been entrusted with the word of God. So is that the end of the discussion? Oh, no, far from it. Paul moves on to 
anticipate another move on the chessboard of the unsaved Jewish person here. Here's the second objection, and before he asks this objection, he kind of has the tone of voice of saying, now, I know what you're thinking, and that brings us to number two. I know what you're thinking, and that is that that did not work. What did not work? giving the Jews the law and giving the Jews the gospel, giving the Jews the oracles of God. It was not productive. It didn't work. In fact, the unbelief and the disobedience and the faithlessness of the Jews and their inability to keep the law and their inability to believe the gospel, well, it does prove one thing, and it proves that God is inadequate, that God is not faithful, that he's not competent, that he's not dependable, and that God is not a good designer of salvation plans. The unfaithfulness of unbelieving Jews demonstrates that God does not keep his promises. He has a lack of dependability. That is the accusation or the anticipated question in verse 3. Look at it. What if some were unfaithful, says the questioning Jew? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? You know, in football, coaches are responsible. They have to keep the team together. They're responsible for team morale. One of the other things that coaches have to do in football is they have to draw up plays. They have to come up with a game plan. And so they draw up these plays. They teach these plays. The, pra- the players practice these plays. And then you get to a game, and the players try to execute these plays. If they work, well, then the coach is honored. However, If the team does not have a good day, the media will blame the coach for not having his team properly prepared or having a bad game plan. Well, if you don't have a good game plan and the plays don't work over a prolonged period of time, you will lose games. And if you continue to lose games, you are going to get fired. Well, Paul here anticipates that his Jewish, unbelieving, diatribe, conversation partner is going to accuse God of coming up with a game, a bad game plan, or God obviously not having the ability to follow through on his original design. And so he says, now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that God's plan of giving the Jews the law and the gospel didn't work, And therefore, since that did not work, and since most of them are unsaved, therefore, God himself is not dependable. That is the objection. What is the answer to that objection? Well, it comes in verse 4, and it is a threefold response. First of all, he gives an emotional no. Secondly, he gives a cliche or a mini well-known saying or proverb. And third, he gives them a quote from Scripture in order to prove his point. And so the question is, is God unfaithful? And the short answer is no. No, by no means in the ESV. No, but it's not just no, it's an emotional no. It's a no with an exclamation point. The King James Version says, God forbid. The NIV says, not at all. The Amplified Version says, certainly not. The Christian Standard Version says, absolutely not. 
The easy-to-read version of the Bible says, no. The Phillips translation says, of course not. And the Daryl Hall and John Oates version of the Bible says, I can't go for that, no can do. I can't go for that, can't go for that, can't go for that. You need to get that version of the Bible. It's an emphatic way of saying, in your face, no way. And Paul will use that same phrase, by no means, nine more times in the book of Romans, three times in the book of Galatians, once in the book of 1 Corinthians, for a total of 14 times. So the answer is given as to whether or not God is unreliable. But it is also explained in verse 4 through a pithy little mini proverb, cliche, or familiar saying, and that is, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Now, in the ancient Near East, this was a familiar saying. People would have used it all the time, sort of like we use phrases like, from the frying pan into the fire, or a penny saved is a penny earned. His audience would know this phrase. They would have used this phrase. It probably stems from Psalm 116, verse 11, which says that all men are liars. And so he is speaking here of the well-known and widely accepted truth that lying lips and liars are well-established in the human experience. Now, that does not excuse them nor give them the right to lie just because everyone lies. In fact, if you are an un repentant, habitual liar, you will go to hell. Romans chapter 21 verse 8 says that all liars will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And then in the next chapter, the last chapter of the Bible, God says in Revelation 22 15, outside is everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But that's not Paul's point here at all. Paul's point is not to preach against lying, although lying should be preached against and is wrong. But that is not his point here. His point here is that human beings lie and lying is everywhere. But the axiom, the mini parable, the cliche states not the, 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 the ubiquitous of lying or the, or the, or the, or the, or the proliferation of lying makes it a good thing. He's just saying that can happen, but that in no way impacts nor changes God in any way. He, even though everybody else is a liar, remains true and truthful and faithful and reliable even when the entirety of the human race produces falsehood. So the question here is, does the unbelief and faithfulness of Jews in not obeying the gospel and not obeying the law make God out to be a failure and unreliable? No way. No can do. Even if everyone is a liar, the God of truth is always telling the truth and acting in a faithful and reliable way. I hope that you're following the argument so far. But Paul bolsters it with something else, and that is with a quote from Scripture. And he proves from the Old Testament that God is faithful even when we are not. He quotes David in Psalm 51.4. Now the backstory is that David has committed adultery and David has committed murder and he got caught. And he is confronted by Nathan the prophet. 
And then David repents, and his prayer of repentance is recorded in Psalm 51. And in verse 4, David says, broken before the Lord, crying out for mercy, crushed in tears and in agony, David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That is the same thing that Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 3, verse 4. It is a cut and paste direct quote from Psalm 51 to Romans chapter 3, verse 4. And what is he saying in this? David is saying, I'm wrong. I have sinned. I, I'm, I, I am not defending myself in any way. And any judgment, God, that you would choose to bring against me is 100% deserved on my part. I am not claiming any innocence for myself here. Your judgment is just. He echoes what Abraham said to God, prior to God, torching Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham said in Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The implied answer is that he will, even if he chooses to rain fire and brimstone down upon Sodom and Gomorrah, that is just. God, you decide to do, and what you decide to do is your right, and whatever you decide to do is the right thing to do. You are true, you are right, you are faithful, you are just. And David's prayer for mercy includes, as I said, the possibility that God may punish him or discipline him. And if God chooses to do that, God has every right to do that. And David acknowledges he is not being unfair if he chooses in faithfulness to discipline me. He is faithful and true. And so here's the key, and I hope that you're following the argument. The, the, the question is, is God unfair? And, and, and because, because it, it certainly didn't work. This whole gospel thing, law thing didn't work. And he says, no, God is faithful and he is dependable. Even if everybody's a liar, God still remains true. And proof of it is from the Old Testament in Psalm 51, verse 4, where David says, if you judge me, you are doing the right thing. Paul's point in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4, is that the faithfulness of God is seen not only in his mercy, but also in his wrath and his judgment. If you got that, then you got the point. Did you see it? God's faithfulness is seen not only in his mercy, but it is seen also in his judgment and his wrath. Look back, please, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. Here, there is a discussion concerning the many years of slavery and oppression which God's people have suffered because of their sin. And notice how it is described. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes, our priests, 
our prophets, our fathers, and all our people since the time of the kings of the Assyrians until this day. In other words, we've been at this for a very long time. And there has been a lot of sorrow and many buckets of tears have been shed over the sins which we have committed from the Assyrians and from the Babylonians and from the Medo-Persian Empire. Like, like, like we are getting kicked all over the place. We want you now to understand, Lord, that we understand that the reason why that is happening is because it is our fault and because of our sin and you are still faithful. That's what verse 33 says. Yet you have been righteous. You have been righteous. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. Wow. Taken into captivity, that is the fairness and the righteousness of God. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. I think that pretty much sums up what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. In all cases, God is faithful and true. If he elects you and has mercy upon you, well, that proves his faithfulness. But if he damns you and condemns you to hell, well, that also proves his faithfulness. And so you cannot say of God's salvation plan or of the word of God or the gospel or God himself that since most of the Jews didn't believe, well, therefore it didn't work and therefore you can't count on God. That is nonsense, no can do. God is true and God is faithful. And maybe his truth and his justice will be seen in sending you to heaven. And maybe his truth and his justice will be seen in sending you to hell. But God is always true and always right. And so if you end up in hell, and I'm not just throwing that out there flippantly, I sincerely hope that you don't end up in hell. I hope that you are in heaven. I hope that you believe in Jesus Christ. I hope that you call out to him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life. I am not flippantly saying, well, I hope you don't end up in hell. No, sincerely, I, from the bottom of my heart, hope that you do not end up in hell. But please know that if you do, you will not be sulking while you are there thinking that you got an unfair trial. You will hate God just as you hate God right now, but you will know that he is right. So we conclude point number two, and we move into point number three. And as promised, before we move into point number three, the tone that Paul is using is, now, I know what you're thinking. And point number three is, you're thinking, that's not fair. That's not fair. You're telling me that God is going to receive glory even if I am damned. Well, if that's so, then I, through my sin, am a contributor to the glory of God. You see what the person is saying? You're saying, okay, great. God gets glory in me going to hell. Well, then I am a contributor to the glory of God. And since I am a contributor to the glory of God, he is not really being fair and just if he sends me to hell. Uh, it, well, if there were no sinners, God, to condemn, then you wouldn't be glorified in your justice. And so it just isn't fair. If I, through my sin, make you, God, look good, how can you inflict wrath on me when I am a contributor to your glory? You, God, are not a fair God. 
Now notice that before Paul gives the answer, he apologizes for using this borderline blasphemous language and he says, I speak in a human way. In other words, forgive me, this is not the way that I think, this is not the way that I talk. I, 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 I really don't even want to be using this kind of logic. I'm merely repeating what I've heard many of you Jewish people say. And Paul revisits this same idea over in Romans chapter 9, uh, but develops it more fully there in his discussion on election and the right that we have to complain about the doctrine of election. Turn over a few pages to Romans chapter 9. Let me read verses 18 through 21. It's almost the same as Romans chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, to me, this verse is the knockout punch for unconditional election, that he does whatever he wants in salvation. There are some people that are going to be saved. They're going to be saved because he has chosen them to be saved. There are some people that are going to be lost, and they're going to be lost because he didn't choose them for salvation. He hardens whomever he wills. So Paul says, now I know what you're thinking. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? In other words, if he's determined everything ahead of time, nobody can resist his will. How does he still judge me? How does he still find fault with me? And the response in verse 20 is, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make one uh, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for dishonorable. In other words, the clay is not going to be arguing with the potter saying, what are you doing? He has no right to do that, nor do we have any right to answer back to God. He is the one who decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Well, why does he still find fault? That is not yours to answer. He is still fair. But this objector in Romans 3 says, no, that's not fair. He is saying, can we reasonably conclude that since I am bringing to God, then therefore I should be rewarded instead of punished? Now notice how Paul answers this objection in verse 5, that it is righteous for God to inflict wrath, and it is righteous for God to judge. I'm sorry, in verse 6. Look at verse 6. By no means, there's that no can do phrase again, nope, no way, no, no, that's not true, you're not thinking right, by no means, and then the explanation or argument is, for then how could God judge the world? He gives a counter question, how in the world could God judge the world if what you're saying is true? This one is a little bit harder to understand, so put your thinking caps on and pay close attention. First of all, the no by no means is pretty easy to understand, but the why not is a little bit more difficult. Because if God can't judge you, Paul is saying, then he can't judge the world or he can't judge the Gentiles either. Here's the key. The background is really important for understanding this. Jews did not like Gentiles. Jews thought that Gentiles deserved to be judged. Jews wanted the Gentiles to be judged and condemned, the goyim, the nations, the Gentile pigs. They have to be judged. 
And Paul says, no, wait a minute. If I don't judge you, then I can't judge the Gentile either. Remember, back in chapter 1, the Jew is probably applauding because Paul goes to great lengths to show how how unrighteous the Gentiles are. But then he gets to chapter 2 and he says, you Jews are just like the Gentiles. You are also under sin and you are also under judgment. So there's both of you. Now, if you're saying that the Jews should not be judged well, then what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're not going to judge the, the, gen, the, the Jew, then you can't judge the Gentile either. So his argument here is, is, a, is a sine qua non. It's, it's an essential component which is absolutely necessary. So, for example, if you say, I'm going to steer my car, well, the sine qua non is the steering wheel. Well, in this argument, in the mind of the Jew, if the final judgment does and must include the Gentiles, well, if you want that to happen, and I know that you want that to happen, and you're not going to release that, well, the sine qua non is then that you yourself must be judged as well. There is a judgment for everyone, and your law says it. Psalm Psalm 7, verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Of course, there is a judgment. However, if you want to be exempt from the judgment, well, that means that the Gentile is exempt as well, and we know that you don't want that. I don't think you're ready to give up on that. So, God is righteous and fair, and judgment is for everyone. And Paul wrote of this previously back in chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, for both Jew and Gentile, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being, for every human being, for every human being, for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And thus ends point number three, We're moving on to our final point, point number four. But before we get to point number four, Paul sort of has this tone, and that is, now, I know what you're thinking. And what is the objection here? The objection is, what about me? Verses seven and eight, Romans three, seven and eight. Paul says, now I know what you're thinking. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. I will grant that the English translation here makes it a somewhat convoluted set of sentences. Let me see if I can break it down and make it make uh, good sense for us. It's almost identical to the argument in verses 5 and 6 in objection number 3, but there is one difference. Under point number 3 in verses 5 and 6, he is accusing God of being unfair. In verse 4, he is saying, why do I have to be the one to pay for this? What about me? Because my sin ultimately brings glory to God. Since that's true, Paul, why in the world do I then have to pay for it? I mean, if ultimately good is coming from my sin, then why am I being judged and condemned for it and damned for it? 
Let me illustrate it in this way. Let's say that there is a family and they are a very poor family. I'm talking about a really poor family. They don't have enough money to pay the rent. They don't have enough money to eat. They are about to be evicted. And there's a teenage son in the family and he's told by his father, now son, when you go out with your friends tonight, you can stay in the countryside here, spend time with them, but do not go into the city. The son disobeys, he goes into the city and he finds a roll of bills. He finds a lot of money on the ground. In joy, he takes it back to his father and says, look at this, dad, we have money now. We can pay the rent, we can eat. We are in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. So we're in the money. And the father turns around and he punishes the son. And the son says, Dad, what are you doing? The end justifies the means. And all's well that ends well. And if I had obeyed you, we would be evicted. To which the father replies, Son, there is something worse than being evicted. And that is dishonoring your father. You see, it's true that in the end, everything will culminate in God's glory. Creation, salvation, damnation, everything. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass and every little thing, even those things which were intended for evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Ultimately, it is all coming together to bring God glory. But... The one who dishonors God is going to be punished regardless of whether or not their disobedience produces man's good or God's glory. Let me read that again because I don't know if you got it. Listen, this is important. The one who dishonors God will be punished regardless of whether or not or how their disobedience produces man's good or God's glory. This is spelled out very clearly in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. This verse is probably talking about Judas. And Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin or for offenses. For it is necessary, sine qua non, it is necessary that temptations or offenses come. But at the same time, on these railroad tracks that are moving the progress of God down the line, One track is talking about God's sovereignty. The other is speaking of man's responsibility. And Jesus says, woe to or damnation to the one by whom the temptation comes. You see, it is simultaneously true that Judas had been preordained to betray Christ and it could have been no other way. It was even predicted in Scripture. Jesus said, from the beginning, I have chosen you 12, and I know that one of you is a devil. He was preordained for that condemnation. At the same time, with equal truth, he did what he did volitionally and without coercion. He did what he did based on greed. He did what he did because he wanted to do it, and he himself will pay for it throughout eternity in hell. So in answering the question, what about me and why am I still condemned as a sinner? The answer is because you are a sinner and you have chosen to be a sinner and you want to be a sinner. And it's a very twisted way of thinking to say, well, since good comes from evil, therefore let's turn up the volume, let's amp up the evil. 
And notice, not only are the unbelieving Jews responding with this reasoning and this nonsense, but maybe the reason why they are reasoning with this nonsense is because there are people who have told lies about Paul and Silas, and they are accusing Paul of preaching this nonsense, and Paul didn't do it. Look in verse 8 again. And why not do evil that good may come? Paul never said that. Paul never thought that. Paul would never promote that, doing evil so that good will come. And then he adds, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. In other words, I know that you Romans have been hearing reports about what I preach, and you have been told that I am saying, continue to do evil things so that good will come. I never said that. I never thought that. Those are lies, and those are slanderous things, and people who say such things are going to be judged by God. I have enemies who are telling lies about me. I would never say, do evil so that good will come and God will get more glory. He has to address this same vein of thinking over in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, which we will get to in a while. It says there, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is no can do, by no means. So how does Paul answer this fabrication back in chapter 3, verse 8, that he has been saying, let us do evil that good may come? I find it very interesting that in this fourth objection, here we go, Paul doesn't answer it at all. He does not answer the fool according to his folly. He doesn't defend himself in any way. He simply says their condemnation is just. You know what I think he's doing here? I think Paul is saying, I have been writing to you about the fairness of God, the justice of God, the truthfulness of God, the reliability of God, and the fact that there is a judgment. I've been writing to you about these things. Now, there are some people who have lied about me, slanderously lied about me. You know what my response to them is? I believe in the justice and the fairness and the righteousness of God, and it's all going to come out in the judgment. I'm not even going to defend myself. I'm going to let God defend me, because in the end, it's going to be completely fair. Those who have distorted the gospel of God's saving grace and twisting my words to say that I believe you should just do evil things so that good will come, they've done it maliciously. You know what? God's going to deal with them. Because I believe in the justice of God in the final day, he's going to be the one that they're going to have to deal with and not me. So, number one, what's the use of being Jewish? Well, you're the first people to get the word of God. Number two, well, God's plan didn't work. Oh, yes, it did. It works in both salvation and judgment. Number three, this isn't fair. Uh, yes, it is. It's fair. It's fair for the Jew first and also for the Greek. He's going to judge everyone. Well, what about me? I should be rewarded instead of being punished because my sin made God look good. No, that is not true. You are responsible for your own sin. I never said that. And those who have said that about me are going to be condemned. And if you believe that, you too will be condemned. Now, I think that's what Paul is saying as the 
grandmaster chess champion of Romans chapter 3, thinking ahead and anticipating the objections of his opponents. I think that's what he is saying. Seven observations as we close. Number one, have a Bible-centered, Bible-saturated home. This applies to single people, this applies to married people, this applies to married people with children. Paul says that the Jewish people have an advantage because they possessed the oracles or the word of God, the scriptures. And Paul writes to young Timothy and he says in 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood or infancy you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the holy scriptures, the Old Testament, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. First of all, I find it really interesting that the only thing that Timothy had was the Old Testament, and yet Paul says, when Lois and Eunice taught you the word of God when you were just a baby, they were teaching you about Christ. Why? Because Christ is the point of the entire Bible. So, as parents, when you teach the Bible, teach the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and when you teach the Old Testament, point them to Christ. But teach the New Testament as well. Teach the whole Bible to your family. Parents, I challenge you, Have family devotions every day. Parents, make church and the things of God a priority such that your children will know that the word of God is a priority. And I just want to say this. To those of you that send your children to my after-school class, you parents are doing a terrific job. Those kids march into my office every Tuesday knowing the word of God. They know it because they're getting it at home. You are to be commended, and I'm very thankful for the work that you're doing. 20 years ago, my son Charlie wanted to play uh, football. He was just a child at the time. We signed him up for football. We discovered when we did that, all of the games, 100% of them, were going to be on Sundays. Wow, there's a decision to make. I mean, is it, is it okay for a little kid to miss six or eight weeks of church in order to be on a football team? And we wrestled with it in our minds, like, well, maybe he can be evangelistic while he's there or whatever. But, but, but at the end of the day, our, our decision was, no, he's not going to be allowed to play. Not that there would be that much information in those six or eight weeks which would have any bearing upon his life over the long haul, but what it would do would be communicating to him, it is acceptable to play sports above worshiping with God's people on the Lord's day. That is a communication to him which, if he ends up in hell, that's on me because I did not prioritize the word of God. And so what Charlie did is he ended up practicing with the team during the week and he played in zero uh, of the games. And in hindsight, I'm really glad because I think football is a uh, violent and dangerous sport. But that's another sermon for another day. But, um, uh, but uh, I just want to say with great inconsistency and hypocrisy, I will watch others play it. I just hope it's not my son's. Um, <laughs> But that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm saying is parents have to prioritize the word and the church. And there's no guarantee that if you prioritize it, uh, that you will have saved children. For I know parents who are much better than Anna and myself 
and their children ended up being unsaved. And I know people who were horrible parents and their children ended up being saved. All I'm saying is if you have your children around the Word of God, you put them at an advantage. So you want to give them a head start in academics or athletics or socially, that's good. But it is more important that they have a head start in the Word of God. Give your home a self an, an advantage, a head start by being Bible-saturated. Number two, everybody is a liar, but Jesus is the truth. Those of us who claim to be saved by him must be truth-tellers. If you are an habitual, unrepentant liar, the only chance that you have of going to heaven is not the sinner's prayer that you prayed or your baptism or your church membership, but if you are a liar that does not clear, clarify your lies and does not, does not repent of those lies, if you are a liar, the only chance that you have of actually being in heaven is that of God himself being a liar. In other words, if he himself is lying in Revelation 21 and 22, then you might have a chance to get to heaven. Otherwise, you are not saved. Repent and trust Jesus who is the truth. Number three, do not be a Christian fatalist. It is true, whatever will be, will be, and that all things work together for the good of those that love God, and that we are to trust in the sovereignty of God who declares the end from the beginning. But don't take it to the extent, as Paul's imaginary conversation partner did in Romans chapter 3, of saying that my sin brings God glory, and since it brings him glory, therefore it's okay if I sin. No, sin is sin, and sin will be punished. And if you are the sinner, you will be the one who is punished. So don't distort the sovereignty of God by saying, he's got it all planned out, and therefore I am not responsible. My friend, indeed, you are responsible. Number four, and closely related, do not accuse God of injustice. In fact, I would say do not accuse God of anything And please don't buy into this nonsensical pop theology lie that says it is okay for you to vent to God and to be mad at him and to make your accusations against him and to speak of him as though he is unfair or he is unrighteous. He is right in what he does. We are the clay. He is the potter. And so we are not to question his words and his actions and his motives. The judge of all the earth will do right. And so the misinformed person in Romans chapter 3 does not understand the majesty and the purity and the excellence and the justice of God. He is holy and right and good and true. And to think of him otherwise is a gross sin. Number five. God will judge the world, and everyone will be there. I will be there, and you will be there. There will be Jews and Gentiles. Everyone will be there. Your secrets will not be secrets. So, for example, those who spoke slanderously about the apostle Paul and told lies about him, they will be there, and they will be judged, and everything will come out. More importantly, Everything that I have done and everything that you have done will come out. And the only way that we can prepare for that judgment day is to have Jesus Christ as our righteousness, Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so I ask, do you possess Christ? Are you joined to Christ? Do you know Christ? Otherwise, you are not prepared for the judgment. But there is going to be a judgment. Number six, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. 
I find it interesting here that the greatest Christian that ever lived did not defend himself when he cites the slanderous lies that were told about him. He simply says, God will justly take care of it. Later in Romans, Paul tells us exactly how we are to deal with people who slander us or people who hurt us. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look to Jesus Christ, the one who was led as a lamb to the slaughter and did not open his mouth. So, do not vindicate yourself. Please know that God will take care of it. Give place to wrath. Look at the example of Paul. More importantly, look at the example of Christ. And finally, and most importantly, I probably should have moved this earlier in the sermon because you've expended a lot of energy listening up to this point And I have as well. But think of it this way. We are in the final lap of a really long, like a 65-minute race. We are in the final lap. Don't give up now. Sprint to the finish line. Wake yourself up and get this point because this is important. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. There is a lot in this passage which deals with the faithfulness and the justice of God. And it is called into question. And hopefully Paul sufficiently answers those questions and he proves to you that God is faithful and just. However, the passage is mainly addressing the faithfulness and the justice of God toward unbelieving Jews who will experience the faithfulness and justice of God in his wrath and condemnation. But I want to remind you as well that the faithfulness and justice of God is at play in the forgiveness of our sins. Even as it says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> I think sometimes we read that verse and we say, if we confess our sins, he's, he's going to forgive us. He's not just forgiving us. He's forgiving us in a way which is faithful and just. How in the world can it be faithful and just? You see, the concepts of faithfulness and justice apply not only to judgment and damnation, but they also form the foundation for the gospel whereby the Christian can be assured of forgiveness when we sin and the non-Christian can become a Christian. And here's how this works. Because God is faithful and just, he must and he will punish all sin with death. And in love, for reasons that we will never know, in an amazing, crazy act of love, you do remember love. I told you at the beginning of the sermon about love. Here's where love comes into play. This is what you must never forget. In a crazy, unpredictable, wow, where did that come from? Act of love, God 
who has every right to damn every one of us to hell, chose to instead kill his beloved only begotten son on the cross to pay for our sins. And so Jesus came and he took our sins and our sorrows and he made them his very own and he paid for them on the cross by his death and he rose again on the third day proving that the payment was accepted by God. And now all who believe in and cry out to and embrace Jesus by faith are saved and are forgiven. And when the final judgment day arrives, those who have joined themselves to Christ, those who have hidden behind Christ, those who are Believing in Christ will be saved. Why? Why will they be saved? Because God is faithful and just. In other words, you can't put your trust in God and then God turn around and damn you in the final day because God would not be faithful and just if he did so. He will, with faithfulness and justice, condemn the unsaved to hell. So too, that same God in faithfulness and justice will pardon all who have trusted in his risen son. And so if you have trusted in Christ Jesus for your salvation, here is the assurance of your salvation. It is the character of God, his faithfulness, his justice to keep his promises and to give you peace and eternal rest. If you trust in Christ, and God sends you to hell, he has more to lose than you do. For if he sends you to hell and you have trusted in Christ, then he is no longer God because he is no longer faithful and just. But because he is faithful and just, he's not going to send you in hell. He is faithful, he is just, he is loving. Why would you ever stay away from him? Go to God through Jesus and you will be just fine. All right, (coughs) 69 down, 364 to go, which means what? It means we're getting there. It means we're getting there. Let's pray. Lord, I'm trusting in you. Please cause all of these people to trust in you, for you are trustworthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.